0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Know that grace, peace, mercy, and hope are yours from the triune God. Amen. So I have a bit of a confession to make to you all tonight. I'm not the most spiritual of people. It's not to say that I'm a bad pastor or doesn't make me one, although some of you might make that contention yourselves. It's simply to say that I have a terrible time slowing down, taking time to seek the presence of God in my life, seeking ways to discern God's way forward over and above my own. I have the strong tendency to rely more on myself than on God or on others. I suck at delegating tasks. I suck at inviting people to participate in the work of God. I'm constantly working on... uh, cultivating a prayer life and a prayer practice that is meaningful. And don't get me wrong, I do pray. I pray for you all, and I pray for big stuff like world peace, and an end to poverty and disease, and of course, a Led Zeppelin reunion tour. As I got to thinking about it this week, uh, this, this term that a writer named Parker Palmer coined sort of stuck with me, and it describes me pretty well. The term that he uses is called functional atheist, and his shorthand definition for a functional atheist is one who holds the belief that ultimate responsibility for everything rests with us. This is the unconscious, unexamined conviction that if anything decent is going to happen here, we are the ones who must make it happen. In a way, Palmer is problematizing the perspective that many of us operate from, in which we see ourselves as the masters of our own universe and the ultimate arbiters of our own destiny. We functional atheists, on the one hand, confess our belief in the power of God who created the world, the one who called a people into being and relationship, the one who tried over and over again to heal the brokenness that existed in that relationship and the relationships between one another. We confess our faith, perhaps, in Jesus, God in human flesh, who has bridged the gap between the world's brokenness and God's perfect love. We functional atheists show up to church, we participate, we lead, hell, some of us even get ordained, but when push comes to shove, we operate as though God in one way, shape, or form is dead. In the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche declared God to be dead. And in 1966, Time magazine posed the question, is God dead? on the cover of their magazine. Black Sabbath has also made this declaration, as have plenty of others. But most of the time this declaration about God's death has something to do with the way in which God functions or doesn't in the midst of our society and world. It is a commentary on the trade-offs we've made as humanity and as a culture, sometimes choosing things like materialism and individualism over sharing and community. Or it speaks to the decline of the church or any number of ways in which God seems to be absent from our world. But God's death can also take on on very real modes of expression in our own lives. For me, it's taken on the form of being a lone wolf who knows better, who can do the work better, who has a better vision and clarity about ways to move forward than anyone else. For me, the expression of God's death in my life can look like isolation, anger, and resentment towards God's people, none of you but other parts of God's people. (laughs) It has led to me being burnt out, pissed off, and generally suspicious of viewpoints that counter my own at various times along my path. In a roundabout way, the so-called wicked tenants in Jesus' parable today operate with this sort of perspective about the landowner. As their scheming and violence escalates first against the landowner's slaves sent to collect what was due him, and later against the landowner's own son, we can see that they're playing a waiting game with the one who created and owns the vineyard in which they work. They're waiting for the landowner to die so that they might inherit something that was really never theirs to begin with. They're playing for possession of fruitful land through violence and disregard for the investment that was made before they ever were entrusted with the work to which they were called. Now Jesus' point in telling this story is a little tricky to discern. On the one hand, he provokes the religious leaders of the time to convict themselves and pronounce a punishment for centuries of corrupted religious practice in the temple. In another way, Jesus is foreshadowing his own death and the creation of a new religious order built upon the stone that the builders had rejected. But rather than using this text as proof that Christians have replaced Jews as God's chosen people, as some have, Jesus' parable actually invites us to see the folly of our way of living as though God were dead. Jesus' parable invites reflection upon the ways in which our life choices have done violence to others, the ways in which we take for granted the very life we have been given, including the creation from which we extract resources, wealth, and nutrition. But most importantly, it sets us up to believe that death has the ultimate word, a perspective that gets a big chuckle from God and a huge reversal at the empty tomb. Jesus sets us up to believe that the son's death in the story is the last word, and, that, and all that remains is the waiting game with the landowner. With that setup, we, like others who lived through the wonder of an empty tomb on the third day, find ourselves surprised and amazed by the love and power of God. In order to arrive at that place where the limits of life and death are challenged, we must journey to the place of death with that sacrificial son, with the one who was foolishly sent to the caretakers of creation. We are asked to bear witness to the love and power of God in the least likely and most humble of places, a cross. God put his living on full display not by avoiding death, but embracing it and experiencing it fully in Jesus. And so perhaps there's hope for we functional atheists who have acted at times as though God were dead. Because despite our best efforts, Ours is a God who overcomes death, even the death we impose. God does this by sharing life through a faith and trust in something bigger than ourselves. We're reminded most acutely of this bigger something when we gather together in community. We are reminded in a place like this of the power of our collective lives to create beauty. We are reminded in a place like this of our frailty and need for one another and for a God who comforts us in our weakness and challenges us in our strength. We're asked in a place like this to overcome our resentment and anger toward one another in a way that promotes peace and harmony. I, for one, can say that I'm pretty damn thankful for this holy place and for you holy people who have helped me to experience the living God in my own life and in the lives of one another. I'm thankful for the space that has been created here for all of us to reconnect with the one who entrusts us now with the precious gift of tending to one another and tending to creation. I'm thankful for this community here that reminds me that I'm not in it alone, that God is not dead, and that together with one another we can imagine and experience God's kingdom. Thanks be to the living God for this gift and all others. Amen.